0: Welcome to another inspirational message from the Chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Two weeks ago we started a new series in the 830 service called Pick a Parable. Pick a Parable. So we're going through one parable two weeks ago. Um, this week we are going through one called the parable of the workers in the vineyard, Matthew 21 to 16. This is the only um, account of this parable in Matthew's gospel. So it's unique. Um, I like it. I, I felt God was um, asking me to present it this morning. So here we are. So... Matthew 20, chapter 1 through to 16. should be up on the screen behind me. You can follow along with me. I'm going to read out the whole passage. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon as well. And he did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out again and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Bit sneaky, isn't it? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? And so Jesus sums up this parable by saying, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, we have a... A cultural lens that we read this through, a Western 21st century cultural lens. But it's not much different to the lens that his audience would have interpreted that parable through. So our initial reaction is to side with the day workers, the ones that have done the big shift, worked through the day and got the same pay. And Jesus was very purposeful in framing this for the crowds. So I think there would have been turmoil. Yeah. And the, par- the parable touches on this, but there would have been a lot of anger. Bad workplace culture. Yeah. Terrible. I reckon after a full day of that, if that happened today, you'd have people pulling out their phones, ringing the union rep, going, Hey, you better get down here. Stuff's going to happen soon. And it's an awful thing. Others would have been filling out um, a a submission to the Fair Work Ombudsman on their phone as they're holding a denarius in the other hand, going, "We're going we're going to fair work over this. This is shocking. It's a HR nightmare. Terrible. If you're a business owner, don't do that. You'll get caught out and you'll get slammed. But anyway, it was common practice in that day for business owners to go to the local square the piazza, the town centre, whatever you want to call it. And workers would go there. There was no Seek, there was no LinkedIn, couldn't print off your resume, there was nothing like that. You went, if you wanted work, you went to the square. Employers would come and they'd pick you out and they would give you work. And that was how it was done. It was a day-by-day thing. And even in Leviticus 19.13 in the Law of Moses, It says that um, it it commands business owners to pay hired help and pay them on that day. There's no weekly, fortnightly, monthly payroll in those days. It was all here's your money, uh, cash in hand at the end of a hard day. So the payment that was given to these people was generous in essence but it wasn't fair and, and we read it as it not being fair and that's how Jesus wants us to read it. The owner is showing fairness but fairness is subjective and I'll explain this in a little while. Um, but we don't know the circumstances as to why the business owner went out to the square five times throughout the day. He went out obviously the first time to get workers to come in to, do his vin- to work in his vineyard but we don't know exactly why he went out four extra times. And the parable is very intentional about not giving that detail. There was plenty of reasons that we can throw in which would kind of skew the meaning of the parable. So we could surmise that there was poor workforce planning. He just didn't have any idea of how many grapes needed to be picked on that day and he didn't get enough workers at 6am. So he had to go back out another four times. Or he he may not have been able to pick so many suitable workers in the first lot that he went back to get the ones that weren't as good maybe they weren't as strong and athletic or young or whatever it might have been he might have went back to get some um, some less mobile people throughout the day or maybe they weren't there the parable says that they were there and they were standing around all day and it it gives the impression that they were just lazy um, but that may not have been the case Um, maybe they thought all right I'm here I've got my denarius for today I'm going to pick some grapes, and maybe, maybe they d- just didn't hit their KPIs for that day. I don't know. These are just some of the things that my brain comes up with. Um, Ten years working in HR departments around Australia will, um, will just – I don't know. I don't know how my brain works, but this is, this is my reasoning here. Um, maybe those afternoon workers worked in that vineyard the day before. And the vineyard owner went in to get some fresh blokes that morning because he knew it was going to be hard work. And then they were waiting around that day thinking, hang on, I'm not getting rehired, what's going on? I don't have a rolling contract with this employer. Um, Maybe, just maybe, the afternoon workers just weren't physically up to a full day of work. And the owner thought that he would give them some time to rest throughout the morning. I don't know. But, sorry, Di, <laughs> maybe they were old. I've been dancing around that point without trying to say it. <laughs> but anyway, it's on record. Do we get it on the podcast? I didn't say that. It was the lovely Di Case, who is an absolute workhorse, I might add, an absolute workhorse. Um, but maybe the workers didn't grasp that it was a social enterprise that was, was employing people towards the end of the day that weren't great workers, but they were getting the hard work done. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they just missed the point of what the employer was trying to do in how he was running his business. The parable won't ever explain it. And that's the point of the parable. The point is that the more detail that we know, the more we fixate on those details. It's just our human nature to fixate on those details. And Jesus is really deliberate in removing those details that are so important to the meaning of that story, but would detract to that meaning because we would create our own meaning onto that story. Jesus came to earth to remove detail. He was always battling with Pharisees, with religious people who were always trying to create more detail to create more certainty, but it was only certainty in their own minds. It wasn't certainty about who God is or what he is or how he is or how he loves us. It was all about how they fitted into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus came to abolish those religious details, which is why he's so deliberate in removing them and keeping his parables to a real bare minimum. It makes us go and think about what it could have been or what it might be to God rather than fixing on small details with meaning. And so what I love about this and we skimmed over this was that the day workers got paid last. You'd think that so if I was running a business I would think oh I'm going to give I'm going to give my money first to the blokes who've worked longest. They've been away from their families. They probably need a drink of water. They need to go. They need to rest up so that they can come back tomorrow if they've done a good day's work. But, he, but the landowner doesn't do that. He does it as a test. So they see a denarius getting handed out one by one to people who've worked one hour, three hours, six hours. And they're thinking, oh, we signed up for a denarius. And we're going to get more because these people didn't sign up for a denarius and they're getting a denarius. So we've worked six times, three times, twice as much as those people. Here comes the overtime. Baby can pay for petrol, can pay for m- mortgage, whatever it might be. Well, I'm going to get some better money. And it doesn't happen that way. So the expectations rise in that moment where the landowner's handing it out, but then they plummet. And, it, and in exchange for the expectations rising, their resentment rises as well. And Jesus is proving a point here in the fact that if we're participating in something bigger than us, we remove ourselves out of the power of that meaning by thinking about how we deserve things. When we think that we deserve something, we remove God out of that situation And so what this parable is talking about, it's talking about eternal life. And just before this chapter in Matthew, chapter 19 in Matthew, is the parable of the rich young ruler. Now that happens in other Gospels. That's depicted in other Gospels. And the rich young ruler, just to retrace memories here, is about a young man who wants to buy his way into heaven and buy his way into salvation and eternal life. And Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, God and money. How hard it is for people to enter the kingdom of God when they have so much money. And he's using this as an example. It's not prescriptive. If you have a lot of money, that's okay. It's fine. Praise God, he's blessed you with money. But the the point that Jesus comes into at, in Matthew chapter 19 is that if we concentrate on what we do to get into heaven and eternal life and to buy salvation, we remove God out of it and we're missing the whole point. And then in Matthew 20, the next chapter, he's speaking to the same people. He's speaking to the same people in Judea and he's saying, and he he runs this parable through as an example to highlight that we cannot do anything to earn eternal life. We can't buy it, we can't earn it through good works we don't deserve any of it and also he's presenting this parable because he's running with the Jew and Gentile narrative so the Jews of the day they've followed the details they've done the work they've been they've been part of God's kingdom because they can trace their ancestry back to Adam and so they think that they deserve it and they probably do if you're looking at a scoreboard of works but Jesus comes to flip that on, that on its head and they don't. And suddenly they're seeing Gentiles come to the Lord and receive what they receive after doing a lifetime of good works, generations of good works, generational blessings. And they're thinking, hang on, I'm getting a, a denarius of salvation. This doesn't work. And so Jesus is messing with their heads. And I just, I love the fact that he uses a parable just to chip away at this really controversial teaching that flips history on its head and it sets eternity into earth for everyone to attain. But it's not attainment. I shouldn't use the word attain. That was a poor use of of, um, vocabulary. Receive. Yeah, it's about receiving. Um, So it's not about the work done. It's about the parable is highlighting idleness in souls. So people who weren't able to receive salvation through their Judaism because they weren't Jews, they were idle. They had no access to salvation. And Jesus is saying, no, if you turn up in the workplace and you're willing to work, you receive salvation. If you if you're willing to come into the kingdom of heaven and if you're willing to partake in something bigger than you. We'll give you some reward. That's fine. But do it because it's worthwhile uh, for eternity. And so I want to pull out three things that this parable teaches us about the kingdom of heaven and eternal life in the not very many minutes that I have left. I want to think about how awestruck those people were that worked one hour. And they get a day's wage for one hour's work. And they get paid first. Whether they knew about the, the shift workers from the morning getting that amount of money or not, we don't know. But they've come in, done an hour's work and got a day's wage. These guys are manual labourers with no industrial relations system underpinning their workplace rights. Yeah. So then they get a denarius and they go, how good is this? That's eternal life. And so we hear stories. I heard a story this week about someone praying for someone in their family for 20 years. And in the final days of their life, they take salvation. 20 years. And they were older than 20. So there were other people, I would assume, praying for their salvation right since this man was a boy. Even before he was born, there would have been people Praying for his salvation. People have prayed for your salvation too. You've received it. If you haven't received it, I really want to speak with you after the service today. But how awestruck these people would have been over the generosity. Second point I want to point out. We won't ever know why the other workers were hired later. And that's the point. We're not comparing them with other workers even though they were comparing themselves with other workers, we don't compare because bitterness creeps in. Bitterness and resentment creeps in, and when we when we have bitterness and resentment creep in and sits on our heart, it's like a scar that removes uh, removes the removes the ability for Jesus to work in our hearts. When we let that filter into our hearts, we we remove space for Jesus to work within us. Um, but what, I, what, I, what Jesus would have liked to have taught to a humanity that wasn't fallen in this parable would have been that the workers who worked for a day and saw their contemporaries who worked an hour or three or five or whatever get the same payment, wouldn't it have been fantastic as a picture of heaven that they celebrated these people as much as their own works I've been a Christian all my life let's say I've been in church all my life I would consider myself a morning worker and as you're reading this parable you would be placing yourself in uh, in a category here you might be an afternoon worker you might be at the end of you know in your twilight years and you've just been a Christian for a few years that's fantastic the kingdom of heaven celebrates that it's not like this story. It can be like this story, but it's not like this story. When we get up to heaven, they're celebrating whether people receive salvation on their deathbed or whether people receive salvation as soon as they're able to say, I love Jesus, when they're in Sunday school. And then they carry Jesus all through their life. The beauty of salvation is not lost. And so when we focus on our efforts and we're not focusing on God, we lose, we lose the ability to receive God's blessing and it counts for people's rewards as well. Um, we tend to think, I th- I think that we tend to think that we're under-rewarded a lot of the time. That's part of our cultural conditioning that we deserve more, we're entitled to more, we've done this, uh, we'll, just, we'll just skip over the bad stuff and yeah, there's a little bit of bad stuff but on the whole, we're good people but we tend to skip over the bad stuff and think that we're entitled to more but Jesus flips that on the head and goes, no, none of you are able to attain attain a denarius for a day's work. And in my reading this week I'd never I, I've read this parable so many times and I have never picked up on this but as I read further and wider about this parable preparing to present it this morning I found this out. A denarius is a day's wage. We know that from the parable. But a Roman soldier In that time, who would put their life at stake, who's given their life and taken the pledge for Caesar and country, who does an infinitely more harder job than a vineyard worker gets paid one denarius a day. And then you have an unskilled worker picking grapes, whinging about only getting a denarius for a full day's work. None of those people deserved a denarius. That was so generous for the vineyard worker to pay them that, to promise that at the start of the day. Hey, mate, come along at 6am, you get a day's work, you get a denarius. They would have skipped to that vineyard thinking, how good is this? I hope there's grapes there tomorrow so I can come back and get another denarius. That's the whole point that Jesus is making. Salvation Is so generous. Salvation is so much bigger than what we deserve, and it is a blessing from God. What we deem what they deem to be unfair is actually more than fair. It's unfair that it was so generous and they whinged about it. So salvation is something that we can often take for granted. I do. Can I I be brave enough to confess that, that I don't always praise God for my salvation? I know it's a good thing, but I don't get up every day going, hey, God, I'm so glad I've got salvation. I'm so glad I've got eternal life. I get bogged down by the day. I get bogged down about all the grapes I have to pick in that day sometimes. But I want to pray before we pass over to Mr. Dan Urquhart, who's going to go forward. And we're going to have a bit of reflection time now as well. Father God, thank you so much that eternal life cannot be measured apart from the fact that it is generous. We know that much. We know that we cannot attain eternal life, salvation in you, forgiveness for our sins because you are a generous God and you give it to us whether we grumble, you give it to us whether we think we deserve it or not. And so, Father, we just want to take this moment to say thank you. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus, that same Jesus that said this parable that warned us about how we could be as humans. You sent that Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have something that we don't deserve, goodness in you, eternal life in you. You are a good God, a generous God. We thank you for giving that to us so freely. So, Lord, help us to remember that it is good, it is not deserved, and it is the best thing that we can have in our life. We
1: ask this in your name. Amen. That's the way. Thank you, Bill. We, uh, we might get started on the next section if you, if you want to get rolling. Thanks for that message today, mate. That was awesome. It's, uh, it's so good to reflect, isn't it, on on what God's given us, you know. Some of the things that are most precious to us in life we take for granted because, um, because we didn't do anything to earn them, you know. We didn't do anything to earn salvation. We haven't actually done anything to earn family. Those things that are most precious to us quite often are just a gift, a gift from God. So it's so good just to be able to reflect on things like that and, and have an appreciation for what we actually have in this world. So... What I want to talk about today is I want to talk about desire. I'm going to read you a quote just to kick off and uh, we're going to uh, start the conversation around desire. But what I want to do is I'm going to ask, after a little bit, I'm going to ask you to pick a path. We're going to pick a path today. And so you have a true, I'm going to ask you the question. So I to ask you, you've got two choices. It's um, true riches or God's righteousness. Okay, so we're going to go through the message a little bit, and then when I ask if you, if I forget, you remind me. You have to pick. Which, you pick which path you want to go. We're going to have true riches or God's righteousness. But we're going to start with desire. Listen to this quote. It says, "If I find myself, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world." Anybody ever heard that quote? C.S. Lewis, exactly. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. How does God get the attention of mankind to show him that there is something bigger and better on offer when all he sees is what's in front of him every day? All he sees and experiences is just things by his own natural senses. How does God show us that the worldly options open to us every day actually get in the way of real riches? of real desire and contentment, belonging and satisfaction. How does God rattle our cage? How does He wake us up? How does He get our attention? Listen to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, He has planted eternity in in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So how does God put eternity in the hearts of man? We read these things, but how does he do it? I want to say that God gives us desire. He gives us these desires, these feelings, these emotions, this unsettled feeling that there's just something more, something that we're always reaching out for. We're going to talk about desire today, but what I want to to premise is that this is God's way of getting our attention. Desire is a good thing. Every one of us here has a desire. But one thing I know about desire is desire can also be very frustrating. Who knows that? That you're not sure what it is, but you just know that there's something in you. Well, it's God who said that He created you before the beginning of time for good works. That He'd set apart just for you, that you were created just for good works. So how does God get your attention? He does it through desire. So he sows a sense of wonder and purpose and destiny in our hearts. He sows seeds of greatness and expectation in us. He sows eternity in us. And this is why mankind asks questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? What is my purpose? God has given us deep desire and longing for more than what we can see. So desire is God's way of drawing us to himself. He places them in us so he can fulfill those things through us. But we're the ones that have got to carry it. We're the ones that have got to connect the dots between what we experience and all the temptations and all the distractions and then being focused. No, no, no. I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to live like this. This is the direction I'm going. This is the desire in my heart. But the problem is between the desire in our heart and the actual understanding of it or the outworking of it is this big nothingness this big sense of feeling of, I know there's more, but I don't know what it is. And so what we do is we go off here and we think it's this and we go off here and we think it's that. And I can tell you a big part of my Christian walk, I've been a Christian since I was about 24, so not non-believing, Christian walk has been one of frustration, one of wondering what it is that God has for me and sensing that God does have something more for me but feeling like I was just way in the middle of not knowing anything. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what it is and how we work with God in desire. But what I want to bring out firstly is um, a, a scripture in Revelations that Jesus talks about to the church of the Laodiceans. Alattice- okay, in Revelations 3, it says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. I would that you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I've prospered, and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, poor, and blind, and naked. I counseled you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may be able to clothe yourselves and see the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might be able to see. So here we see Jesus talking to Christian people. He's talking to a Christian church that have lost their way. Of course, Jesus is saying, hey, look, I've got a desire for you. I've put a desire in your heart, but you're over here and you really need to be here. And so there's an expectation. It would, un- it would be understood that there's an expectation that God not only puts a desire in our heart, but he wants us to align with that desire. There's an expectation here that they should have known where they're up to and they don't know where they're up to. They're off over here and God's saying, hey, mate, you guys think that you're rich. I'm telling that you're poor. You've never even come to me to ask for stage one. And so out of this, God is trying to tell us that in faith, a lot of our work, this is going to be a surprise to you, in faith, a lot of our work is by faith. And this little gap that we have between desire and between understanding it and walking it out is no excuse for us to go war. Just because we don't understand it and just because we haven't actually got a full, um, uh, a full understanding of what it might be, what we do know is that you were created for good works. Now, for a while, that's got to be enough. For a season of time, that has to be enough. If you want to appreciate your salvation, start there. You were created deliberately for good works. You know, this this world will tell you that you're just an accident, that we're just stardust, that we're just slime out of a pond. Well, God says, no, no, I know that I created you for a good reason, for a good purpose. And the Bible says that he will start to work that out of us. But what, what I do know and what we do know about God is he guards the path very carefully. Jesus says that, um, that we walk, we're meant to walk on a narrow path because wide is a path that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life and not many people will follow on it. So there is a a purpose for your life and God has planted a desire in your heart and God says that you will do above and beyond what you've ever hoped, dreamed or imagined according to his power working in you. And so God hasn't got a problem with desire. He hasn't got a problem with you making plans. What he has a problem with here is he has a problem with these people getting distracted between the understanding that they have it and them actually outworking it. They've, in the middle here, they've gone and gone AWOL somewhere. And we're going to be careful not to do that in our lives. Now, let's pick a path. Are we going to talk, finish on true riches or do you want to talk about God's righteousness? Anybody? Thought? True riches. God's righteousness. God's righteousness. All right. Here we go. I'm not sure how much time I've got left, guys, up here. So please let me know. Um, You let me know. Five minutes. Great. All right. God's righteousness. Okay. So he says to the Latiosians in regards to righteousness, and he said, I, I counseled you to come to me by gold refining the fire. But then he goes on, he says, and I come to you. I ask you to come to me to buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now, you mentioned it before, mate. Um, righteousness. Now what Jesus was dealing with back in the days he was dealing with a people that wanted to be righteous on their own. They wanted to be righteous because they belonged to this particular um clan, you know, Judah or you know all of those clans or they belonged to a certain sect, whether it be Slati- um, Sadducees or Fad- whatever, you know what I'm getting at, Sadducees <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But the point was is that it wasn't where they, where they put their feet or it wasn't where they were born into or it wasn't what their parents had always believed or it wasn't what city they lived in. It wasn't what religion they were. It, it was God was always trying to push them towards a righteousness that came from him. Now, Jesus was saying to these people that I know your works – but you're not righteous, you haven't come to me for righteousness. So there's two ways that we can get righteousness wrong. The first one we've mentioned, the first one is this, is to rely on our own. The the easiest way to get yourself into trouble in regards to righteousness is to rely on your own. Listen to this scripture, Romans 10 says, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Okay, who believes? Who believes and faith are the same thing? Let's go back to this. From the beginning, your salvation become, comes by faith and there's a desire and a stirring in you for something that you don't understand. And it says here that righteousness... These glasses drive me mad. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everybody who believes. And this process in the middle between salvation and us understanding our purpose and us having desire and us not really knowing what it is but knowing there's something and stirring in us, that's what it means to believe. So you don't just believe it's salvation and all of a sudden you're saved and you have no responsibilities under God. Your salvation and righteousness becomes, comes at, at that point of salvation. At this point of salvation, God says that we're being made perfect. But you know what it goes on to say? That we're being made holy. So there's a being process. There's a, sense, a process in the middle where we have salvation. We've said yes to Jesus. But who knows that it's not easy from that day on. There's a process in the middle where it's hard and we're not sure why things happen. And, but what are we called to do? Believe. Keep on believing. Hold fast. Hold fast to the faith you had at the beginning. Hold fast to the fact that God said that he created you before the beginning of time for good works. You don't feel you're worthy. That's okay. Rely on his worthiness. Salvation and righteousness is you relying on his righteousness, on what he did on who He is. Your job's just to hold on in the middle when everyone's telling you the opposite, including yourself. That's what it means to live righteously. Now, that's the first way that we can get in trouble is relying on our own righteousness. Now, the second way, and we're going to finish on this, is this. The other way we can miss God's righteousness is to think that it covers our unrighteousness. Listen to this scripture. 1 John 3 says, Dear children, Do not let anybody deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we tell you, so now we can tell who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love the believers does not belong to God. Christian or no Christian, righteousness is doing the right thing. Righteousness is a protection. I'll tell you what righteousness is. It's when we start out in the beginning and we've said yes to God before that, we didn't even know what was right. In fact, it gave us pleasure to do the wrong thing, if you're anything like me. But then what we realise, even before we become a Christian, is that our life's fallen apart, that our marriage has fallen apart, that our emotions have fallen apart, that our finances have fallen apart, and we can't connect the dots. It's not until we have the wisdom of God that we go, oh, actually, I was actually just doing the wrong thing. I was sowing the wrong seed. I was sowing the wrong seed into my life and the wrong fruit was coming up. But we never want to take responsibility for that when we're not a Christian. But it's an expectation that we take responsibility for it when we become a Christian. Righteousness protects your way. So there's a righteousness that comes from God through faith. And there's a righteousness that we carry out and we walk out that protects our way. Righteousness is doing the right thing. You tell your young kids that you are protected by righteousness and, the, and, and all that kind of stuff and then don't tell them that they've got to brush their teeth and do their homework and not steal and not swear and not blow up at teachers, you know, and go to work and earn a living. You know, there is a way that is right and there's a way that is wrong. And so when we're talking about this journey of life, we have salvation, amazing, awesome, free, righteousness, Absolutely relying on God's goodness, his kindness, everything that he's given us, his strength, his forgiveness, every single thing that he's given us, it's all from God. But then we need to apply it. That bit in the middle is us having faith and and faithfulness and staying um, strong in in what we understand of him and being righteous in our actions and our deeds. You do the right thing, you sow the right seed, the Bible talks about you will have the right fruit. If you don't. You won't. But the thing is, we're going to finish on this. Desire. Desire. God gave you those desires. God said that He has taken out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That He's given you a new spirit. That you don't need to say to people, how do I follow God? That God will put a spirit in you that helps you to know how to follow God. And that your desires can be trusted. But the way that God protects the way is through righteousness and through faith and through faithfulness and through being faithful when you're not sure what's going on because you hang on to what you do know. If there's heaps you don't know, you hang on to what you do know and you do know he's a good God and he protects your way and he's created you for a purpose and he has a plan and you know that it's good because it says in the Bible that I know the plans over you. It's for good and not for evil. And so what about when evil's happening? Well, you hang on and you keep on being righteous. You keep on doing the right thing. You keep on being faithful to what you know and hang on. But that desire that God has given you, there's an expectation that you'll work with him, that you'll hold fast, that that desire that God has put in your heart for whatever it is and only you know and it doesn't make sense and it seems too big and it seems too far off. Well, God put that there. And if it's a good desire, of course. If it's not, you'll sort it out along the way, I'm hoping. But desire is a good thing, in Jesus' name. All right, we're going to finish. Lord, I thank you for this. Father, this is a big topic. We're going to talk about it further out in the 10 o'clock session. Um, but Father, I just pray, Lord God, that you put desire in our heart. You put turn in our heart, Lord God. You put purpose in our heart. You put, Lord God, um, the desire to do good works. And Father, I pray you'll outwork that in people. But I thank you, Lord, that you do guard the way and you guard the way through righteousness and faith and and a number of other things, Lord. And we just praise your name, Lord God, that you protect your servants in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey again, thanks so
0: much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you.